When you think about John the Baptist, uh, someone like him, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of words that come to mind that you would use to describe him. Words like eccentric, you know. Uh, he was considered rather eccentric because of where he lived, because of uh, what he preached and what he ate and the clothes he wore. So you might use that word, eccentric. Maybe you prefer the word unconventional. Or maybe you would just go to straight to words like, well, that's odd, or that's weird, or he's just out there. Well, the best word to describe John the Baptist is that he was great. That's the word Jesus chose. John the Baptist was great. He was a great man. In fact, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. There's no one greater. He was faithful to the Lord to the very end. And though he had a, a, a short life, he didn't live long, but he was still very great. There was an article in Business Review magazine uh, that said, uh, talking about greatness, that great men have, been, have but a few minutes to be great, and what makes a person great is their ability to find out what is most important and to focus in on that which is most important. That's a good description of John the Baptist. He knew what was most important, or more specifically, who was most important. His life and his ministry were all about pointing others to Jesus. So John the Baptist, he's not your typical character. He was out of the ordinary. He went against the flow. He didn't follow everyone else's drumbeat. He clearly followed the Lord's, and he stayed true to that all the way to the end. He is what many have considered the greatest prophet, and that's our title this morning. And he had a lot of titles, but as the greatest prophet, he was the voice in the wilderness. That's how he's described in verses 1 through 12. If you would, read the first two verses with me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we just had a 30-year time jump from where we left off at the end of chapter 2. If you recall, at the end of chapter 2, uh, Joseph and Mary went down to Egypt. They took baby Jesus or infant Jesus with them. They were down there for probably about six months, and then they come back to Israel, but not to, uh, to Bethlehem where he was born. They go to Nazareth where Jesus grows up in the, the little town of Nazareth. And then chapter 3, bam, 30 years later, we fast forward and now we have John the Baptist. Now, John and Jesus were related. If you recall, John's mom, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mom, Mary, they were cousins. That made John and Jesus technically second cousins. And since John, he was raised in the hill country of Judea, which is in the south, and Jesus, he was up in the north uh, towards uh, Nazareth, when Jesus and his family would come down to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship, well, every time they, they probably met together several times a year, that they would connect Jesus and John. Now, John was a PK, not a preacher's kid, a priest's kid, and his father, Zechariah, was one of the priests in the temple. That would mean that John the Baptist would be in line to one day join in the priesthood and serve in the temple. That's what his life had mapped out for him. But he was a PK gone rogue. He went out to the desert instead. He didn't follow the typical protocol that a priest would follow. 
Priests were trained at a very early age, and by age 20, they would be engaged in some priestly duties. And by age 30, they were fully engaged in the priesthood and their functions in the temple in Jerusalem. But not John the Baptist. He was different. Instead of going to Jerusalem, he had Jerusalem come to him. He goes out 20 to 30 miles from Jerusalem to the wilderness of Judea, and he starts baptizing people there. Now, John the Baptist, he had an interesting story around his birth as well. His parents were quite old, and they were childless, and they trusted in the Lord, and they waited on the Lord uh, for his timing. And one day, while Zechariah is in the temple for the evening sacrifice, an angel, Gabriel, appears, and he says to him, Zechariah, you and your wife, though she is barren, though she is unable to conceive, she's going to have a child, and he's going to be great. And in fact, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, and you are to call him John. What's interesting is that Zechariah didn't seem to believe Gabriel, and he says, well, how will I know this is true? And because he asked the question with doubt, Gabriel answers his question by making him unable to speak. So Zechariah, he's stunned, and he walks out of the temple that night, and he couldn't talk, so now he's having to quickly learn sign language and able to communicate with people, and he's that way for several months. Now, a few months after Mary found out that she was pregnant, she went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and when Mary went into the house and called her name, she called out Elizabeth, the baby inside of Elizabeth jumped. She was about five to six months pregnant with John at the time, and so she says to Mary, as soon as your voice hit my ears, the baby in my womb jumped. It leaped for joy. And she says, how was it that the mother of my Lord has come to visit me? And by that time, or by the time John the Baptist was born, and they asked Elizabeth, well, what shall we call the baby? What's his name? Because we can't ask your husband. He can't talk. Well, she says, call his name John. And they're like, why, John? Nobody in your family has that name. Nobody's named John. And so they, they try to get some information out of Zechariah, and he motions for someone to get him a writing tablet, and he writes down the name John. Let's call him John. And in that moment, he can now speak again. He, he, he answered their question. He's to be called John. Now he can speak. And the first words were to bless the Lord, and he blessed his son, and he prophesies in Luke chapter, chapter 1, Verses 76 and 77, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. So John the Baptist became the forerunner or the ambassador of Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling the prediction in the last book of the Old Testament where God says in the book of Malachi, in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So, although John, he, he appears on the pages of the New Testament, he's actually considered an Old Testament prophet. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets spoke until John. All the prophets spoke until John the Baptist. That makes John the Baptist the last Old Testament prophet fulfilling the last Old Testament book, pointing towards the coming Messiah. So he is preparing the way of the Lord. Now we are told in verse 1 that he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, 
which is down by the Dead Sea, down south, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level, depending on where you are in the city of Jerusalem. The Dead Sea is the lowest place in the world at 1,410 feet below sea level. The surrounding area is a limestone, rocky desert. It's hot, it's barren, it's desolate. My wife and I had the opportunity to go to, uh, to Israel. It's now five years ago now, and we went to the Dead Sea area. And now, when you drive there, you have to go through certain outer roads because the roads closest to the Dead Sea are uh, they're having the sinkholes. So the roads are like gone in certain spots. It's, and the Dead Sea is going lower and lower. There's, there's less water there. So it's interesting that rather than going up to Jerusalem where the crowds are, John the Baptist goes out of his way uh, to this barren desert on the northern shores of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. And he's out in the middle of nowhere telling whoever would listen to come and to repent. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He has the people of Jerusalem and Judea come to him. If you were to try to connect a PR person to John the Baptist, they would, they would say, John, you know, your ministry is doomed to failure. I mean, no one's going to come listen to you out here. It takes a camel to even get here. Your ministry won't grow. But this seems to be the style of God that we often see in the Bible, that rather than following typical protocol or what might seem logical, that that which is theological isn't always logical. Not the things of God. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Jesus wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. No, he was born outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And he lived in Nazareth. And they, they, that was a scorned town. People said, well, what good can come from Nazareth? And John the Baptist, he's out in the middle of nowhere, but the people of Jerusalem, they come to him in verse 2, and he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you know that John the Baptist's first message is exactly the same as that, as that of Jesus? In the next chapter, Jesus will speak, and the first words recorded by Matthew out of the lips of Jesus are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John wanted people to know that the kingdom of heaven was near. It was as close as your hand. It's close. It's near. And this is why John was so urgent to his call to repentance. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then we must get ready. We must get ready now. But understand something. John's main message, it wasn't, hey, you're a sinner and you need to repent. His main message was the Messiah, the king, is coming. He's coming. The call to repentance was the response to the news that the king and his kingdom were coming. In fact, it was already here, in a sense, with Jesus arriving. We're about to see. Now, the word repent, you've you've heard it. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard the word repent. It means a change. It's a thorough change, a complete change. It's a constitutional change. It's a change of heart or a change of mind. But it also speaks of a change of behavior. It does address that. So repentance speaks of a change of direction, not just a sorrow of heart. It's not just feeling bad. 
It's not just feeling sorry for what you did. There's a change that takes place. And when you see the idea or the word repent in the Bible, it is often accompanied by another word, believe. Believe. One passage says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Those are two sides to the same coin. To repent means that I turn away from sin. To believe means that I turn to God. It's a complete turning. I don't just deny my flesh and turn from my sinful, evil things, but I make a complete turn in, from those things to the Lord. So it's, it's two sides to the same coin. It's one motion of repenting and believing. So that's John's message. That's his first message. And if that's the case, if that's the first message, and that was the most important message for both John and for Jesus to preach, then repentance should be an important message in the church today. Repent. It's not popular. It's not one you put on the billboards and think a lot of people are going to come. It's going to be attracting a lot of crowds. But for John and Jesus, the most important message was to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Matthew, he continues and he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. That's what we see in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, all four Gospels quote Isaiah, and they point to John the Baptist as the, fulfilling what Isaiah wrote about in, chapter, in the 40th chapter of his prophecy. In John's Gospel, it says that the religious leaders from Jerusalem came and they asked John some questions like, are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Well, are you Elijah? Because the Bible predicted Elijah uh, to come. And he says, no, I'm not Elijah either. And they said, are you the prophet? Quoting from the prediction from Deuteronomy that God would send another prophet like Moses. And he says, no, I'm not any of those guys. But let me tell you who I am. I am a voice, a voice of one crying in the desert. Get right with God. Make, make the way of the Lord straight. He says, I am the voice. I love that, especially because in John's gospel, it begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. He's the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. Jesus is the word. And John says, I'm not the word. I'm just the voice for the word to be carried on. God doesn't need any more saviors. He has one. That's his son, Jesus. But God is looking for more voices. Those who will proclaim the word. Those will, who will announce the word and point to the word of the Lord and the word of God. That is Jesus. He doesn't need saviors or messiahs, but he's looking for voices. And I hope that our voice, that your voice and my voice will be joined to the voice of the one crying in the wilderness that we are called to that, to be that along with him. So he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this phrase, make his paths straight, has in mind building up a great road for the arrival of a majestic king. What they would do, they would do some serious landscaping. They would fill in all the valleys and they would knock down the hills so that when the king arrived, it was just a smooth road for him to enter in on. 
Uh, that's the idea behind that phrase. Jesus was the coming Messiah and the King, and, the, and John the Baptist was the one crying in the wilderness, and through his message of repentance, he worked to prepare the way of the Lord. That's what his work was, as the voice. Now look at verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he looked wild. I mean, you, there's certain people in a crowd, you notice somebody, and they're like, they're, they're different than everybody else. You know? And your eyes are drawn to that person. He looked wild. He wore camel's hair. Now, camels were not kosher in the Jewish mind. Uh, he couldn't eat, you, you couldn't eat them, not that you probably want to, but you could wear their fur. And it was considered a shelter from the cold, and some authors even say it kept you from the heat, and it certainly kept you from the rain, keeping you from getting wet. So it was very, very practical, just not very fashionable. But that was his clothing. And his diet is really different. It says that his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, locusts were actually one of the few bugs that were considered kosher by Jewish thought. You could eat them. And in case you were wondering how you would do that, because I know you're probably writing down some recipes right now, they, the bugs were ground into a paste, then flour was added, and they would bake them into little cakes, you know, like crab cakes, right? But they're locust cakes. And other times they were boiled or stewed or roasted with butter. I mean, you put butter on anything, it's going to taste a lot better, right? The Assyrians found a way to preserve them sort of like locust chips, and they would carry them around on their journeys. So I did a little research because this had me curious. Um, you can actually go on Amazon and you can order locust cricket, like bags of it. They sell, and very related to the locust is the cricket. And if you're keeping up with protein powders and such, you can get cricket protein powder. I, they had it at H-E-B a few weeks ago, the cricket bars, like cricket protein. I can't imagine that they taste that much different because they are related. The, the locust and the grasshopper and the crickets are all related. In fact, just one last tidbit, you can go on Amazon and they have cricket chips and the, they're called, get this, chirps chips. That's just genius. That's genius marketing. I didn't order them, but I thought about it. But that's what he ate. Of course, the honey helps a lot too, right, to, to get those down. That's what he wore. That's what he ate. Verse 5, then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So understand that baptism did not begin as a Christian ritual. Its origin is not in the New Testament. It comes as a Jewish ritual. First of all, if you were a proselyte, if you were a Gentile who wanted to enter the community of the Jewish people, you had to go through a series of things in order to convert to Judaism. You had to be taught Judaism by a scribe. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised regardless of your age. And you had to go through a ritual cleansing. A baptism by immersion in water. And once you did all those things, then you would be allowed into the community of Judaism. That's one purpose of Jewish baptism. Another purpose, if you were Jewish and you wanted to worship in the temple, you would find the ritual bath right at the bottom of the steps of the temple. 
and you would dunk, uh, you would dunk under the water in the, the mikvah. Uh, you'd come up, dry yourself up, off, and then you'd go up the steps, and you would walk into the temple. Or if you, were defiled, if you had defiled yourself by touching a dead person or another object that caused defilement according to the Old Testament law, or if you had like a sore on your body or a bloody flow, many of the things it talks about, when you were healed from those things, you had to be immersed in the mikvah, be ritually cleansed, and then you would be allowed to worship. So there are two ways that baptism was used in Judaism. If you were a Gentile wanting, wanting to convert to Judaism, or if you were Jewish and you were defiled and you wanted to worship in the temple, you would be baptized as it's listed here. But what makes this odd is that John is not immersing Gentiles to become Jews. He was not bapt- or, excuse me, he was baptizing Jews who needed to repent of their sins. And for a Jew in John's day to submit to baptism like this was to say, I confess that I am as far away from God as a Gentile, and I need to get right with him. So this was truly a work of the Holy Spirit. And they were coming. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. This was a move of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing response to the voice in the wilderness. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, we'll stop right there. So you have this delegation of religious leaders from Jerusalem. They're sent down to check out John, to find out what's going on. So these religious leaders come, and there are two religious parties mentioned. First, the Pharisees. Now, they were a small group. It's believed that there were only 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Christ. The word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word that means separated ones. They believed that they were were the holy ones, that, that unlike the rest of the Jews, they were separate in that sense. They were the favored ones, the holy ones, because they attended to every little point of the, the law. They were very structured and extremely legalistic. And we read about many confrontations with Jesus throughout the Gospels. That's the Pharisees. They were the primary enemies of Jesus in the Gospels. The Sadducees are also mentioned, and they're going to be the primary enemies of the early church in the book of Acts. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees were more liberal. They, were, they denied anything supernatural, while the Pharisees believed in all things supernatural, like creation and angels and demons and spirits and resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees denied angels and spirits and the resurrection from the dead. And what are the disciples Preaching in the book of Acts, Jesus rose from the dead. That was their message. So the Sadducees became enemies of the early church. Now, there were even fewer Sadducees than Pharisees at that time, but they had power. They had political power. The high priest was a Sadducee. They had power and they also had money. And they tried to integrate with the Romans and the leadership in Rome and make friends with everyone. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other. They couldn't get along at all. They didn't didn't agree on much of anything except one thing. They hated Jesus. They shared a mutual hatred of Jesus, and both groups wanted to get rid of him. 
So this delegation of Pharisees and Sadducees, they're, they're starting their alliance even right here, right now, before Jesus begins his public ministry. They come down to John out in the wilderness, and notice what John says at the rest of verse 7. He sees them, and he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a hello. Welcome. Brood means offspring. Basically, he's saying, you sons of snakes. A viper was considered very shrewd, but extremely dangerous. He's saying, yeah, you look really religious. You look so spiritual, but you're dangerous. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, what does he mean by that? He likely has in mind what the prophets foretold about Gentiles coming to the Lord. Even though you're descendants of Abraham, and you wouldn't regard Gentiles any more than these stones, God is able to raise up children from these outsiders, from the stones to Abraham. And in saying this, John, he's warning them to stop trusting in their Jewish heritage and to truly repent, to truly turn from their sins and turn to the Lord and with the repentance that bears fruit. He's saying, you look spiritual, but there's no fruit in your life. So he warns them to flee from the wrath to come. That word flee implies immediate action, swift action, and a straight movement without diversions. Do it now. Repent now. And he continues his warning in verse 10, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. One thing we always see with John the Baptist, he's always pointing to Jesus. He's the one. You're asking about who I am. I'm just a voice. He's the word. I'm the messenger, he is the message. And in John's gospel, he says, Behold, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist, though he's a cousin of Jesus, he thought that Jesus was the answer to our need for our sins to be forgiven and that he was the Savior of the world. He believed his cousin was God in human flesh. I think this adds to the weight and authenticity of John's testimony. How many of you would say that of your cousin? My cousin is God. My cousin takes away the sins of the world. No, you know your cousin. You've spent time with your cousin. You've gotten in arguments. You've fought with your cousin. John believed his cousin was the one. In fact, the way John describes himself in relation to Jesus, he's so self-abasing. He says, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. In a Jewish household, the job of the most menial slave was to take the sandals off the feet of the one who owned the home. You, you would take off their sandals, you would wash their feet, and then you would hold on to their sandals until they asked for them back, and then you would you would give them. John says, I'm not even worthy to be my cousin's most menial slave. That's who I am in comparison to who he is. And maybe that's why Jesus says that he was the greatest. He understood 
what it meant to serve him. John understood who he was in light of who Jesus is. And he says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose, hand, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We're gonna, I'll explain that, but let's continue. He continues to talk about fire here in verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his, his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. To baptize with fire means to bring the fires of judgment, which will destroy the wicked like chaff. Chaff is the, the worthless uh, residue of a wheat stalk after the kernel of grain has been removed. So here's John. He's out in the wilderness. He's preaching to people, and he's preaching three kinds of baptism. The first one is the baptism in water. It's a baptism of repentance, unto repentance, to signify your life has changed, that you're repenting of your sins for, for uh, the remission of sin, as it says. That's the first baptism. The second type of, of baptism that John mentioned is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will give. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Anyone who comes to Christ is immediately and instantly baptized or immersed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. When you give your life to Christ, you are immediately immersed. You're baptized into Christ. We're baptized. We're immersed. We are part of one another in the church, the body of believers. He baptizes us instantly and immediately, once and for all, into the body of Christ. Subsequent to that, there, are, there is the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the power of, of, for us to be witnesses unto him, to, as it says in Acts 1.8, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So there's the baptism of water. There's the baptism with the Holy Spirit by Jesus for believers. And this third type of baptism is the baptism of fire. That's the baptism that unbelievers will eventually get when they will be totally immersed in the fiery judgment of God. Remember, he's addressing after this conversation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he's talking about. John uses an analogy that would, they would all understand about a farmer winnowing his grain. And John describes a winnowing fan, which is three to four feet long. It's got three or four prongs on it, like a little rake. And the farmer would scoop, uh, scoop uh, typically in the evening time, they would do this when the Mediterranean wind was blowing from west to east and the velocity was just right to do this winnow, winnowing. And the farmer would take the wheat, they would toss it up in the air, and the wind would blow the inedible parts, the, the chaff, uh, the light flaky stuff, and it would blow away to the side, and then that would be gathered and burned. Only the heavier grain of wheat would fall straight to the ground. It was heavier, and the wind wouldn't affect it as much. So he tossed it up. The wheat would come down. The chaff would blow away. They would gather the chaff, and they would put it in a pile, and they would burn it. So this is the future judgment, the fiery judgment that all unbelievers will eventually be immersed in. So John is talking about three baptisms. And in this conversation, John gets a surprise. Now Jesus comes to be baptized. So the voice, of the, the voice in the wilderness is also the baptizer of Jesus. We see that beginning of verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. 
And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus now emerges from his many years of obscurity. And his first action here, it carries a lot of weight, a lot of meaning in understanding the rest of his ministry. This is foundational. So so John, he sees Jesus coming and he's puzzled like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? This is for guilty people. This is for sinful people. This isn't for you, Jesus. You're the sinless one. And Jesus says, well, let it happen. Permit it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness. It wasn't that his baptism alone fulfilled all righteousness, but it was an an important step in the overall mission of Jesus to identify with sinners, to identify with you and I. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's someone who can relate to you. He felt what you feel as a human. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to face trials and temptations and heartache and to have a heart breaking with these kinds of issues. He's experienced that. He knows that. He feels it. And he was in all points tempted as we are. So Jesus came first to make this public statement. He's saying the only way that unrighteous people are going to be made righteous is by me coming to the world and identifying with them. And I want to identify with them, even though I'm sinless and and you, you baptize sinners. I know all of that, but I'm coming to fulfill all righteousness. And there's a sense in which Jesus' baptism prefigures his death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, just like when we get baptized today, Romans 6 says that we, when we get baptized, we're looking back, we're identifying backwards to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul said, when you go into the water, that's like a dead man being buried in the ground. And you come up out of the water, that's like a resurrection has happened. So walk in newness of life. So this is Jesus identifying with us, and it prefigures his own death, burial, and resurrection. Well, continuing in Matthew 3, it says at the end of verse 15, then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, the the entire Godhead shows up. God the Father spoke. God the Son is the one being baptized, and God the Spirit was represented by a dove. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus in a visible way, much like when the Spirit 
came upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2, where there was noticeable, there was something visible about it. In fact, Luke chapter 3 verse 22 says it like this, that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. So in some way, the Spirit was present, and it flew down, as it were, upon Jesus like a dove. Whatever it was, it was real. And in John chapter 1, it indicates that John the Baptist saw it, and he understood what it meant when he says this. And Jesus, he's about to begin his public ministry, and he's going to, he's going to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father spoke, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. It was important to God the Father to publicly demonstrate that Jesus' baptism was not just like anyone else's. There's something different going on here. So the Father speaks, and something different's going on, on here in, in the sense of being a display of repentance. It was not a display of repentance, but a righteous identification with sinners, motivated by love, and it was pleasing to the Father. So Jesus was baptized to be identified with sinful hum- humanity, but also to be identified to sinful humanity. He's drawing attention to that. So all three appear at Jesus' baptism. The Godhead, the Trinity, three separate persons, one eternal God, co-equal, co-eternal. All three show up at this inaugurating event at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And let me tell you that in your life, all three showed up and took part. The Father sent His Son to the world to die on the cross. The Father played a role in that. The Son, Jesus, He went to the cross to die for your sins and mine. He was obedient to the Father, even unto death, even the death of a cross. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, who would convict the world of of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And once we come to Christ, well, first of all, we're led by the Spirit to come to Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that draws us to Christ. And then when we give our life to Christ, the Spirit comes to live inside of us, to indwell us, to, to fill us, and to empower us to live the Christian life. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to live the Christian life, which is exactly how Jesus lived his earthly life. Jesus, Jesus laid aside his deity and lived in his humanity, but surrendered and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that, to show us the way so that we could follow his example in that way. He lived fully human, depending on the Holy Spirit. We'll see that in the coming weeks and in, as we go through, through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So all three members of the Trinity, as they were, are present here, they were also present with your salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to circle back around to something, a passage I mentioned at the beginning. Matthew 11, verse 11. This is Jesus speaking of John the Baptist. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. I left off there, but notice what he says next. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Though John was great, he lived and died before the completion of Jesus' work on the cross and and his resurrection from, from the empty tomb. But you and I, we have the full benefit and the blessing to be on this side of the cross 
And like John the Baptist, with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can be a voice and we can point the way to Jesus. We can be a light, we can be a voice who points to the one who came for us. Praise the Lord for that. And may he do a work in us by his spirit that we might be that voice and be that one who points to Jesus and points out Jesus to others. Let's bow our heads together.